This is Monica Perez here with the absolute fan favorite guest, Eric Buchanan, a constitutional scholar. I would call him a gentleman scholar. So he's not a con law professor piping agenda into young minds. He is literally doing scholarship and sharing it with us. I love that. Thank you for being here, Eric. How are you? I'm great, Monica. How are you? Fantastic. Thank you. And I love to start the show and end it with you telling people about what you do, because I like to share when I trust somebody and they have some a service that they can offer other people. So tell people what you do. Yeah, I appreciate that. So my firm, Eric Buchanan Associates, helps people all over the United States who have been denied disability insurance benefits. We also help some help with health insurance, life insurance, long-term care policies, but mostly it's disability insurance. So if somebody has a long-term disability policy through work, a group policy, or they bought an individual policy on their own, uh, and the insurance company is not giving an answer they like, uh, especially if they're not paying the benefits. We handle those cases all over the United States. We, we're a nationwide practice. We've practiced in most states now. Uh, we work with local attorneys where we need to in the states where we're not licensed. Uh, we can be found on the World Wide Web at BuchananDisability.com. Look us up if you have any questions about disability insurance, uh, ERISA benefits, any benefits you get at work that fall under the federal law of ERISA, or just a normal insurance policy that you bought directly from an insurance agent. If the insurance company's giving you a runaround, give us a call. That is so excellent. I actually found myself once in need of an employment attorney, and I will tell you, it was a life-changing experience. It was a terrible, drawn-out, awful experience, but it was necessary. I had to do it, and uh, boy, having the right lawyer on your side can make a huge difference. So you would be the right lawyer in that circumstance. So thank you very much for sharing that with us. Absolutely. So we have had a journey here where we've walked through that. I think we started, maybe our first conversation about this was about Marbury v. Madison. Like, why does the Supreme Court even decide on the constitutionality of law? And I would still argue it should not but I'm not going to start back all the way at square one. We've gone through the uh, permutations of the court, how overstep their bounds they go or fall short. I think our most recent episode was about the activist court and really taking even more of a policymaking role, which, I mean, couldn't be further than uh, a worse encroachment on the separation of powers. And now though, we're going to pull back a little bit and have a little hope because some recent cases have uh, made you think that there may be a return to more fundamental principles of the limited powers of the Supreme Court, or at least the limited powers of Congress to step all over the Constitution. I don't know if I'm right or wrong about that, but tell us where we're headed. Yeah. So my point of view, and I'll just admit that some of this is influenced by my point of view, is I'm a libertarian-leaning conservative, and I think the Supreme Court spent most of the 20th century getting a lot of stuff wrong. And and we'll talk about some of that very quickly. There was some stuff before that they got wrong, and we can go pick apart individual cases. We've talked about the Slaughterhouse case uh, that gutted the 14th Amendment. That was a horrible case in the 1870s. But Early in the 1900s, the Supreme Court, I think, started going in the wrong direction. It got worse throughout the 20th century. One of the big ways they got off track was they allowed big administrative agencies to have power. And one of the things I think that administrative agencies do worse under a constitutional system, what, what's really bad about them, among other things, is that they absolutely steamroll over the separation of powers. 
So for people who don't haven't you know taken a con law class or haven't studied the Constitution or studied civics enough back when they were in high school, one of the things the founding fathers set up in our Constitution was the idea that Congress makes the laws, but they don't get to decide who gets who gets uh, put in court, who gets arrested, who gets prosecuted. The president gets to decide who gets prosecuted because he hires the prosecutors. He enforces the law, but he didn't get to decide what's against the law. He doesn't get to make the rules. And the courts are not supposed to either make the rules or decide who's supposed to get prosecuted. They're supposed to decide, is this person guilty or not? Is this a violation of the law? And in some cases, is this even law that should be allowed to go forward? Is it a constitutional law? Those three I things. I that part. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not that, convinced. Yeah, well, let's, okay. let's let's we'll have that conversation <laughs> again. Uh, again, if I you just want had, to. But you let's, know, let's, I can't let you. You know, just have to tell you that that's the that's the one stumbling block. But everything else, I think we agree on. Yeah, I, I, the problem. The other argument is, as somebody who's pretty libertarian and wants a very very limited government, is who's going to tell Congress no when they do something really bad? Well, there's uh, nullification. The next election. It's nullification. But- it's state nullification. That's why there's no FBI in the Constitution. That's why all that stuff was created to force Southern states to obey congressional law when they just could have not enforced it. I think the lack of enforcement mechanism is the mechanism. Maybe. I just think, well, let's say this. By the time the 20th century came along and these giant administrative agencies are put in place, we need somebody now who's going to tell them no. Right. Giant administrative agencies are totally unconstitutional, and the court should have said the executive branch has absolutely no right to make law. That's a violation of separation of powers. However, even that wouldn't have been the court's place to say that, but they they didn't say it. And, I, and I'm sure it was. a. I probably went to the Supreme Court. Somebody must have challenged the authority of the president to make law. Yeah, we'll talk about a couple of those cases briefly, but just kind of big picture for like another 30 seconds. I just want to I just want to put out there as somebody who studied the constitution as an eagle scout, somebody who's in the military, someone whose dad and grandfather and father-in-law all served in the military as somebody who's it, it's in my DNA to be a patriot and support the constitution. The founding fathers made it set it up on purpose that it's supposed to be hard to pass a law. It's supposed to be hard to change the rules. It's supposed to be hard to get anything done at the federal level. States have a little more leeway. They still have to have basically a Republican form of government, says the Constitution, but they have a lot of power over a lot of things. But generally speaking, the Constitution really has four ways that there's a separation of power. We talked about the three different branches. The president doesn't get to make the rules. The courts don't get to make the rules. That's Congress. But Congress is divided into the the House and the Senate, so they've got to all agree and get majorities out of both of those. And then there's the right of the president to veto those. And the fourth the fourth check on the on the separation of powers comes from Article 4 in the Constitution that basically says there's things the states can do and if you also look at Article 1, Section 8, there's a list of things that Congress can do. And if not, states are supposed to have those powers. So there's really kind of the other, the federalism check on the power of the federal government. That there's only limited things the federal government is supposed to do in the first place. So we've got the separation of powers making it harder. Plus, there's only this this limited laundry list in the Constitution of what, what the Supreme Court, what the Congress is supposed to be able to pass laws about. And what happened starting around the time of the Civil War, but that really started rolling down the tracks like a locomotive around the turn of the century, 1900 to 1920, was this idea that 
America's become so modern and so big that we need to solve these problems with something beyond just what the founding fathers put in the constitution. So you have the whole idea of Teddy Roosevelt sort of being a, he called himself a progressive at the time and he wanted to be able to claw back against some of what he, you know, he was one of the first people to call him robber barons and, and the, and, and the trusts of these big businesses that had grown out of hand and, and you couldn't control them with one state. So there, maybe you could argue looking back in history, there needed to be some limits on what these big corporations could do and the federal government need to be getting more involved. But then along came Woodrow Wilson around the time of, of World War One, and we got the Federal Reserve, we got the income tax, and we the got FBI. this whole concept, the FBI, we got this whole concept that experts can run things better than you can, that your vote shouldn't count for very much, and we should have these agencies run by experts, experts that are going to scientifically tell us how to do stuff, and the little people can just you know vote on a few things, but it's really going to be the agencies that will do stuff. And they really, he was one of the first real major progressives in the United States who really believed that get out of the way of the technocrats and the experts and everything will be great. Did you ever, you must know who Colonel House is, the the handler of Woodrow Wilson. Do you know who Colonel oh, House okay, is? Yeah. He yeah. wasn't really a colonel, but he was one of the founders of the Council of Foreign Relations. He wrote a book called Philip Drew, D-R-U, uh, Administrator. And it was about basically how the government should be like a big corporation run by whatever. And um, King Gillette wrote a book like that called World Corporation. That's Gillette of like the Gillette Company. So around that time that they were thinking in those terms and uh, he was influenced by that. But yes, that's when that all happened. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the uh, another part of this, just to remember is the founding fathers didn't want the federal government to be able to do stuff easily. So you had separation between Congress you know, and the Senate, and then you had the three different branches and all this stuff had to happen to make a law. Well, that wasn't going to be efficient enough government. And the basic theme of the progressives was we need these administrative agencies with these technocrats, with these experts, and I'm saying quotation marks with my fingers. And part of what they needed to be able to do and what they were allowed to do through these administrative agencies was they could make up regulations that weren't passed by Congress. So they weren't passed by majority of both houses and signed into law by the president. They could issue a regulation. And basically, if Congress says you have the power to regulate the environment, then they can go out and write regulations about how much, when you can build on your land or how much smoke you can emit from your factory or what the, how much CO2 your, your cows can put out is what the kind of stuff they're talking about now. But the bottom line is they, the agencies can make up those rules, but the agencies also have the power to decide what cases to prosecute. They can decide who to take before an administrative agency. And instead of being able to put you in jail, they just civilly fine you or shut down your business. So it's still almost like a criminal proceeding, but the courts have created this legal fiction that is really civil. So you kind of only have so many rights. And the third thing that they can do is they decide who to prosecute. They decide what the rules are, but they also decide who's guilty or not. So wow. they have the power. Right. They have the power of Congress. They have the power of the president and they have wow. the the power of the courts all rolled into one. Wow. They have, it's called, if you remember from administrative law in college and in law school, it's, it's quasi judicial yeah, rights. That's crazy. They have quasi executive rights, quasi, quasi legislative rights. I would like to interject that there is an alternative to this because people will say, well, things are complicated. How do you deal with pollution? According to a book I read by Murray Rothbard, and I can't verify it, I did not verify it independently. I did not try, but the idea is good anyway. When during the Industrial Revolution, when there was a lot of pollution going on in England, people were just suing for 
trespass. Like, you're not allowed to spew your ash on my land. And the government said, for policy reasons, we are going to bypass your rights and allow it. And so that failure to protect absolute property rights resulted in this void that is filled by the regulatory state to the point where people don't even think of that as an alternative. So I just thought it's good to put that out there. Uh, interesting you say that, because that's actually the example I gave my administrative law professor during a discussion in class one time of how else could we do it? Well, restore the common law. Yes. If somebody trespasses on my property right? by putting manure in the river that runs by yep. my property and ruins my property, I should be able to sue for that. And he's, oh, that's not going to solve all the problems. And it was well, a, it's a complete a, How do you know? You know how, and that's <laughs> yeah. when people like things aren't sustainable. It's like, well, if you subsidize research, subsidize infrastructure, have wars for oil and pe- keep people from... Uh, um, asserting their property rights, then yeah, you have out of control, you know, unchecked development that isn't doesn't respond to the fact that it has been butting up against resource limitations and other people's rights. So I feel like the government causes the problem and then uses that as the solution as the excuse to implement the solution. And what else is new? Yeah, and the other problem that happens with these agencies is not only do they create the problem and the solution to have the power over that, but the whole idea of Woodrow Wilson was saying, well, these are going to be the experts. We're going to have somebody in there who's really focused on how to maintain uh, pollution or how to <sighs> control the FCC, the airways through the FCC or whatever. But humans are humans. They're going to have a political ideal. And corruption is more, even more of a thing. Like, it's very clear, especially in those days, they were talking about something like a robber baron, and this guy would cheat that guy, and blah, blah, blah. What makes you think that the administrator is going to be above that? It just makes it so much easier for one guy to go in and suborn the process. Yeah, so you have the problem of corruption, especially the modern day version of that would be the people coming and going. I'll go work for the FCC for a while, then I'll go work for a company that's applying for an FCC license, and then after they let me go, I can go back and work for the FCC again, and then I can go be a lobbyist for somebody who has FCC issues to get the law changed. And especially like in the in the big pharma uh, industry and, and a lot of big industry, that's how we did it. That's how we got NutraSuite. It's, well, it's how we've ended up with this crony capitalist system in the United States is people, the revolving door between government lobbying and working for the big agencies and then working for the companies themselves. All right. So taking a step back, the, the agencies, not only is there the potential of the corruption and the conflict of interest, but just the idea that that you end up with a lot of people working in these agencies who tend to mostly lean one way politically. So they're going to push a political agenda, even if the Senate, the House, and the president are all of a different party. There's this all these people in the bureaucracy that, that are going to, at worst, slow roll any changes that are made at the top. They're going to have their own agendas, and they don't want to change the way they're doing it. So they've got you know their own political ideas. So there's all these problems with the giant agencies. Some of the worst ones are the fact that they can go in and make up their own rules as they go along. So let me just hit a couple of the cases we've talked about before very briefly to set up where we are today. And then I'll let, then you and I can talk about the good news and whether you think it's good news or not. Cause I, I, I think it is, but all right, let's you know, hear you know, it. we can yeah. be cynical. All right. So one of the cases we talked about, why can't people just sue to fix this stuff when they say it's, un- it's unconstitutional and the case of Massachusetts versus Mellon in 1923 uh, there was the, the the cases about they were going to establish a welfare system for pregnant mothers and a woman sued to say that's going to make our taxes go up. And the Supreme Court ultimately said, 
so what? You didn't have an individualized harm. You couldn't sue over this. So basically, that was the rule, no taxpayer standing. So what the part of the system we have in the United States right now is in order for you to sue to say a government agency is doing something unconstitutional or to say that a federal law is unconstitutional, you have to show particularized harm. And that's where that case comes from. There's no standing just because you're a taxpayer and have to pay higher taxes. So that's one example. There's lots of these, but I'm just going to hit a, a couple. I wish, so, or maybe sometime you can touch on this, maybe if we have time later. But when Garland Favrito, my the, uh, election consultant I used to do a lot of shows with during the 2020 election kind of um, recounts and stuff, he was suing and it, it just kept going and kept going and they kept ruling on different things. And in the end, when he was just about to get his big ruling, they said, well, you don't have standing because the voter one- doesn't have standing. And I was like, well, I thought that the first minute he filed the suit, I was like, how could he possibly have standing? But I guess there were some race-based gerrymandering cases that allowed voters to have standing. So I would at some point love to hear as a little bonus what yeah, that's what we're talking about. But essentially, no taxpayer standing and very limited voter standing. Where your your standing comes from? I was the I was the person who was actually harmed by this rule okay. or this law. So no taxpayer um, standing and limited voter standing. Yeah, that's the way a good way of describing it. Okay, uh, very quickly, a couple other cases. J.W. Hampton versus the United States was a case in 1928 that basically established the idea that Congress can let agencies create laws as long as they follow an intelligible principle from the original congressional law. So Congress can write a law that says, EPA, you can write regulations about the environment as long as they're good for the environment. So are you saying that the legislative branch has to empower all of the powers of the administrative body or... That's a great question. Let's start with the the main point of this case is, you remember when you and I were kids and we were on Saturday morning and there's the, I'm just a bill, oh, yes, yes, I'm only that. a bill, yeah. right? So what does it take to make a law in the United States? According to what the founding fathers put in the Constitution, it has to be passed by a majority of the House, a majority of the Senate, and signed by the president. And the president vetoes it, then two-thirds of each House can override that veto, and then it becomes a law. What happens when the EPA says that you can't have more than five cows per acre because they're going to pass too much gas and it's going to create too much CO2? And the EPA puts out that rule and any farmer that does gets fined $10,000 a day. Where did Congress pass that law? So the question is, in this case, the original question was, can Congress even give any power to an agency to create a new rule or does it have to be passed by Congress? Now, people who like big agencies but want to keep the Constitution, the solution could have been that the agencies propose their regulations and they send them up to Congress and somebody in Congress introduces that a bill and they pass it as a bill. That's the way it should work under the Constitution. You could still have agencies with their expertise providing advice and saying this is what the proposed legislation. But instead, what Congress did starting in the late 1890s and really culminating in the 1920s with this case was they started giving power to the agencies to make up the rules. So Congress could say, generally in the area of pollution, you have the power to ensure that there's safe that there's safe drinking water and safe air, air to breathe, and then the agency fills in the gap. See, the problem with that is it's kind of like plea bargains. It By bypassing the way the Constitution creates rulemaking power or whatever, 
you allow the state to get way, way bigger than it ever would have because you're bypassing those processes. Amen. 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 That's that's <laughs> okay. the whole problem that happened in the 20th century. These agencies grew from being a little bit involved to now think of something you try to do in your life that doesn't involve an administrative agency setting some kind of rules. The federal register is where they publish their proposed rules that go into effect after like 90 days after notice and comment. There's like 2000 pages a day that are published oh in the my federal register. Gosh. Yeah, it's just it, That's they, crazy. Yeah, Congress when, could never do that. Right. And when you have a split Congress like we have now, they're only going to pass stuff that's really important. The founding oh, fathers so are fine with that because the democratic process, we voted for our representatives. If they can't work something out, it shouldn't be a rule. Meanwhile, agencies are just putting out rules every day over and over and over again. And they're making up the rules based on some law that was passed in 1974, 1945. Did I ever tell you that Thomas Jefferson had the idea to that any law needs to rest fully finished for one year and only could be passed or signed or whatever after one year with no changes made? I wish he'd been around for the Constitutional that- Convention. He was busy in France, so he didn't oh have gosh. his input. So genius. Yeah, that's so a great one. Well, I'm sure they shipped him off to France because, <laughs> come on, I know how that works. Yeah, that's a whole side story. He was spending a lot of money on wine, and Sally Hemmons was with him, but we can talk oh, about that. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, all right, so the next big thing that happened, 1936, FDR wins his second term. He did not get to appoint a single justice in his first term. And the Supreme Court was regularly saying some of the laws that the Democrat-controlled Congress and the president were passing, the the big agencies, the things like the 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 works programs and the and all that stuff, the Tennessee Valley Authority, those kind of ideas. A lot of those were found to be unconstitutional because they were such big grants of government power. Well, in 1937, the the uh, FDR started pushing the big Democrat majority he had in Congress at the time. Let's uh, pass a law changing the size of the Supreme Court from nine up to 15. And we get to appoint somebody for anybody that's over 70 years old or, or older. And they would have dramatically changed the makeup of the Supreme Court. So it could have just rubber stamped his laws. And that ended again, the guy named Cal Tinney was the comedian who said it's, it was the switch in time that saved nine. That set up the next time period in American history. They started the Supreme Court basically said, oh, that one's okay then. And then, the, and then the president and Congress stopped threatening to pack the court. Ultimately, FDR, you remember he was elected four times. He died in his fourth right. term. Over the next two terms and a few months, he ended up appointing uh, eight Supreme Court justices. So, Oh, my the, gosh. So yeah, he so did by, appoint By the time he all. died, it was all people he had appointed. And then Truman followed him and appointed another one. So it was all Democrat-appointed Supreme Court justices by the early 1950s. So late 30s 1950s it was all it was all basically one party controlled the supreme court so you ended up with um one of the cases along the way uh, was caroline products and that case basically uh held that there was no special protection for uh any kind of business rights or economic rights that the, as long as the, as long as the government could come up with a rational basis uh, to get rid of your economic rights, to, pat, to to regulate something, they could do that. And then the big one, the last one we'll talk about, well, there's two more in history, but the last one we talk about this mid-century time period was Chenery. And Chenery went to the Supreme Court twice. And the first time it went up there, the Supreme Court said, agencies cannot prosecute somebody based on a rule that they had not already announced. 
they have to stay what the rule is and then enforce it. What do they call that? Post hoc or something? Yeah, sort of post hoc rationalization or post hoc rulemaking. But so Chenry one says that an agency may not defend its administrative decision on new grounds not set forth by the agency in its original decision. That's the rule from Chenry one. It gets remanded. And by the time it goes back up, there's another couple of Supreme Court justices that change over. And basically, they change the rule to read that an agency can make up a rule through the administrative adjudication in their discretion. In other words, when they're doing the equivalent of the court case, they can decide during that court case, hey, you know what a good way to regulate this would be? Let's make this rule a rule. And then they can impose that rule during the court case as they're making, they can make up the new rules while they're at the same time deciding whether somebody has violated the agency's rules. So that's basically the opposite of Chenery. It, so the second case comes up and says you can. You, what you was have, that one called? Or is that Chenery, Chenery two? two. Right. It's the same case. Right. And okay, essentially so. what happened was there was a law passed that uh, a company couldn't move all its assets to another company and essentially have the same owners. But they, this other company thought they'd done it right. Um, it was, it was, it had to do with making sure that people didn't have monopolies over utilities as if we're going to get down in the weeds and this family managed to transfer all their assets to a new company. They'd done it right, but people didn't like that. So this agency was trying to find some way from stopping them from doing it, even though they lawyered up and done it exactly yeah, right. That's totally uncool. Yeah. So the second time through, they basically made up a new rule that you weren't allowed to do wrong, said they'd violated that rule. And when it gets to the Supreme court, the Supreme court says, that's what agencies do. They make up rules and making up rules in the middle of an administrative quasi-judicial proceeding is just fine. That's crazy. Then they can never lose. Absolutely. You have no way to defend yourself. What year was Chenery 2? 1947. And this is the famous case where Justice Jackson, who had been appointed by FDR, had the famous quote in his dissent, I give up. Now I realize fully what Mark Twain meant when he said, the more you explain it, the more I don't understand it. <laughs> he had the same reaction we did. Well, the, all right, the last case that I'm going to talk about that in the old line of cases, and this one's relevant big time to what's going on in the Supreme Court right now, and that's Chevron. And what happened in Chevron, it was Chevron versus the Natural Resources Defense Council. The Reagan administration wanted to shortcut the administrative process and start getting rid of some regulations. A reasonably good goal if you're conservative in the 1980s. The problem is the way they went about it is they basically said, that the agencies should have the authority to interpret their regulations the way that they want to. And if they want to change, if they want to interpret the, the, the statute that gives them the power that the way that they want to in order to get rid of regulations, that the courts shouldn't interfere, should not interfere with that. So if the agency wants to interpret its, its power in a way that would let them get rid of certain regulations, the, the, the environmentalists can't complain about that. And that's what the case was about. And so the Supreme Court sort of as a wink, wink, nod, nod to the Reagan administration, get rid of some of these regulations, basically comes up with the Chevron Doctrine. And the Chevron Doctrine says, if the authority given by Congress in the original law is ambiguous, courts will give the benefit of the doubt to the agency's interpretation of its own power. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's what a stupid idea. And it, of course, it gets right after Reagan's no longer president, it starts getting used the other way where agencies are, excuse me, making up all kinds of rules. And you go look and what 
But wouldn't Congress say you were supposed to be regulating? Well, how does it have to do with X, Y, or Z that you're now getting into? And they could go, Chevron, we get to make it up. And that's super ripe for corruption because there's no there's there's no way to resist it. Like that you could if you could co-opt that administrative agency, if an industry could co-opt its own regulators, nobody could challenge them. Yeah, essentially. And it's also the, the old idea that uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts yes. absolutely. So yes. that if an agency decides, hey, we want right, to regulate right. every yeah. little we want to we want to be able to check out the air quality and in, in, in parents' bathrooms to make sure that their kids are not getting Dude, they're banning air. gas stoves with that yeah, BS yeah. excuse. Well, next thing you know, we're gonna they're gonna be able to put an air monitor in your bathroom, and if they don't like the air quality, they can take away your kids. Mm-hmm. Whatever crazy rule you can think of, the yeah. idea under Chevron is if they can say there's some authority Congress gave them to regulate generally air quality, maybe air quality in the home, something wow. like that. So we'll get to a case directly on point that's before the Supreme Court case, before the Supreme Court right now. That's what we're gonna end with. But we're now to modern day. Let's talk about this This current Supreme Court starting to change some stuff. One case about 10 years old, I think, is important, and the rest of them are all in the last couple of years. So the case from about 10 years ago is National Federation of Independent Business versus Sebelius. And if you remember what that is, that's the one that says that the individual mandate in Obamacare is unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. That's the first time since maybe the Lopez case in the 1990s that the Supreme Court said that a law passed by Congress contained something unconstitutional because it was beyond the commerce power granted by Congress, granted <laughs> the Congress and the Constitution. That's Based, the first time they ever said anything stepped beyond the power of the Commerce Clause? In a, well, because remember, Lochner had relied on that, and that got overturned by Caroline Products in the 1930s. The only other meaningful case was the Lopez the case. The Wheatfield. Well, the Wheatfield case also over, also there was Carolyn products and then there was Wheatfield, those cases in the 1930s, right after the packing of the court threat, right after the switch in time to save nine, they basically said the commerce power can cover anything, right? Including what somebody grows on their private property for their private use. That was the Wheatfield case. You're right on, you're right on point with that. So the, the point is it was in 1990s, Congress passed a law that says it's illegal to have a gun in a school zone. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme court actually threw that out and said, how did where did you put anywhere in the law that that has to do with commerce? They just flat out said no guns, <laughs> and so basically right. Congress was told you have to actually at least cite to the Commerce Clause. Well, the the <laughs> the Sebelius case has the important rule that the Congress cannot force you to engage in commercial activity. It does not have the power to regulate commerce by telling you that not buying something is a commercial right. act. Right, and that's right. how they. So that's the first time the Supreme Court really kind of got the guts to, mm-hmm. to to say, "Hey, this is going too far. We need to look at what the Constitution says." And the Commerce Clause cannot give you the authority to force somebody to somebody's refusal to buy something is not commerce. That's why they had to say it was a tax. That's why they had to say it was a tax, but the but, indivi- of course- but the individual mandate itself was still unconstitutional. But yes, they so did a, it go away? But, no, they, but no, it didn't they, no, go away. It didn't go away. They ended up having to. Uh, the, the, I mean, it, now it's gone, right? But it doesn't matter now it's anymore. Gone. It was held upheld as a tax on the other part of that case. Yes. Right. Which is it right or wrong to think that that was an absolutely insane ruling since the bill had originated in the Senate? 
Yeah, so all revenue bills have to originate in the House, and there's a whole story of how they maneuvered that to to, yeah. to, to say well, that I think it, came it has to do with John Roberts on Epstein's Island, but <laughs> I, I would not be John Roberts going the wrong way on that is is a big deal. So anyway, shocker. the point is that was the first time they'd really said that. However, it didn't it didn't really throw out the throw out the individual mandate. But here right. now we're, we're to the point where within the last couple of years. The Trump appointees plus COVID, I think we're starting to see the Supreme Court have one of those groundswell changes. Mm-hmm. The earth is changing. Paradigm earthquake, shift. Paradigm shift where we now have a Supreme Court for the first time in 80 or 90 years is starting to say, where does it say that in the Constitution? And what do you what are you actually asking us to just rubber stamp? And they're not they're not putting up with it. So there's three or four cases I just want to highlight to, to make that point. So the first one is the National Federation of Independent Businesses versus OSHA. And uh, this is the one um, that where Joe Biden tried to uh, have OSHA require everybody, you know, if your business had more than 100 employees, that you had to take the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Now, leaving aside the fact that at this point, it was still unclear whether the vaccines actually did anything to stop the spread. You know, eventually, you know, this is just, I'm not a medical expert, but the ones I've listened to, it became pretty clear that it was not a sterilizing vaccine. It it might help individual people be less sick, uh, but it doesn't actually stop the spread or at least doesn't very much. Maybe it does for a little while. Those are, That's kind of the scientific consensus. Now, at the time, they didn't know for sure. Well, but the, I did read the FDA trials, the, the big pharma trials, and they never there was- tested it. Yeah, there was no evidence in that that it stopped the spread. Right. They just assumed it would. It's ridiculous because some vaccines are contagious. Yeah, yeah. But they just assumed it would stop the spread, and that's why it was okay to tell people you have to get it or you're going to lose your job. But but the White House, Joe Biden, knew or his team knew that there's nowhere in the Constitution or any law that gives them authority to order everybody to get a vaccine. So they tried to shoehorn it into OSHA and make it a, a, an occupational safety and health regulation that you're in, that the company had to require it. And the Supreme Court, in an injunction, now you and I as people who've been to law school understand what a big deal that is, but for people who don't know what that is, that means at the beginning of the case, before uh, any real evidence had been admitted, before the trial, at the very beginning of the case, one side says what the other side is doing is so wrong that clearly we're going to win and we're going to be irreparably harmed if if they're allowed to make us change our behavior. And the Supreme Court said, absolutely correct. You cannot make all these people get vaccines while this case gets actually done properly in front of a trial and gets Good and on gets them. brought on up. Yeah. So they actually grant an injunction saying that there's a high likelihood at the end of the case that the uh, that the employees and the businesses are going to win that this mandate is unconstitutional. Do you feel like that was were you surprised by that ruling or that there was an injunction or what? Because I normally I everyone was rolling over during COVID, so let's just say this was normal times. Was it? Would you expect the Supreme Court to make this kind of a ruling when there isn't extraordinary pressure, or were you surprised that they went ahead and did an injunction? So first of all, this was like one of the first times that we actually saw somebody not roll over during COVID. Right. We had judges saying it was fine to shut down churches. Yeah, but why and part- now? You know, right. why this case? And I think the answer was it was the evidence was starting to come out that the vaccine right. didn't do any good. Okay. 
And I, but I also think that this was the chance for the new justices to basically say, it's time to stop. You can't okay. just make up these rules. So let me just very quickly tell you what yeah. their basis was, and then we can talk about some more. Okay. Basically, the Supreme Court said OSHA grants the power to regulate workplace hazards. But because COVID-19 was a general hazard that applied to the whole world, mm. not just workplaces, mm -hmm. it went beyond the language found in the statute, which is mm -hmm. sort of contrary to Chevron. Because Chevron says, well, because if it's not clearly prohibited in the statute, the agency has the authority to interpret the statute and make up rules. And, you know, those cleanliness rules and stuff are, are pretty general. OSHA's rules for Oh, yeah. The ocean's been making very general, general hygiene. I right. mean, you could say that this was a hygiene. So I'm, I'm happy that they ruled the way they did, but I could definitely see them say this is just another hygiene rule. Right. So remember that what Chevron basically says is if it's unclear yeah. that the agency gets the, Give them the benefit of the gets doubt. the benefit of the doubt. Here's what the Supreme Court said in the, in the vaccine case. We expect Congress to speak clearly when authorizing an agency to exercise power of vast economic and political significance. Right. The question in this case is whether the act plainly authorizes the secretary's mandate. So basically what they said was if it's an important issue, if it affects a whole lot of people, basically there's one that really should be handled by the political system, then we're not going to let the agency fill in the gaps. They're going to have to find clear authorization by Congress. Hmm. Uh, and they, they basically, they don't call it this in this case, but they talked about what's called the major questions doctrine. And the major questions doctrine is basically the idea is if the agency is trying to make up a rule that affects a whole lot of people, something that normal people would think, shouldn't Congress chime in on that if yeah. you're going to make a rule that big, that we're not going to follow Chevron anymore. Um, we're we're going to say the agencies have to find specific authority. Extremely irritating. That kind of nebulous, I know porn when I see it kind of thing, just, I, I just can't stand it. They're just, they, they have to, because there's no constitutional outline for administrative agencies because they're totally unconstitutional, they're just making, they're acting well, like there are limits on it, but it's not. It's Yeah, I, I would say that it's not unconstitutional to have an administrative agency. What's unconstitutional is giving them, A, the power to make up rules that aren't right. passed by Congress, B, the power to prosecute to those rules without having, and to without, adjudicate having, it. Yeah. without having a de novo review in front of an Article right. three judge, and then to prosecute them without some input from the executive branch. In other words, those branches, those things, the three branches of power we're supposed to, supposed to do. You could have agencies, but they'd have to be have a lot more supervision from Congress, from the president, and from the courts. Well, if if the president needs an agency to execute laws for some specific reason, you know, a law that that requires this kind of federal level execution, I can't even think of a, a legitimate law like that. But I guess no. I mean, I guess I guess I could think of it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, but the point is that that what happened during the 20th century is they got rid of all those checks and balances and let right. the agencies just run. Right. And so okay. this is the first time the Supreme Court since the 1930s has started to say, wait a minute, agency, you really, you've got to have some more specific authority than that. And specifically, they're creating an exception to the Chevron doc doctrine if it's a big question. Right. And that's where we are, at least from the first case. So the next case that came along, this one I also think is very important, also from 2022, is West Virginia versus the EPA. In this case, let me try to make it as simple as I can what the facts were. The Obama administration put out a regulation that said 
uh, under the Environmental Protection Act, we're going to require a certain percentage of all the energy created in the United States to come from renewable energy plants. And in the meantime, they can be the energy can be made by some natural gas plants, but the most these uh, the the most certain percentage of the national national energy can produce by coal fire plants and other fossil fuel plants. So coal fire or oil fire or whatever had to be. I think it started like right now it's forty eight percent or whatever it was of the energy in the United States, and then by by a certain year it has to go down to being twenty five percent. And then by a year, by a certain time after that, it had to go down to 15%. And supposedly we're going to make up with it for natural gas for a while and eventually with renewables like solar panel and wind. The problem was that the Environmental Protection Act doesn't come anywhere near giving the agency the authority to regulate the entire energy electrical production outlet of the United States and to regulate the cumulative amount of energy that could be made by coal or whatever. What it did have was a rule that basically said, that each individual factory or plant in the United States uh, could be regulated, and if it was, and if those plants were ever modified in any way, then the agency could create a rule about how much they had to be cleaned up, so that they, they could re- regulate the emissions at the source, i.e., each power plant, but they couldn't do it to the entire economy. And they tried to do it to the entire economy. So the Obama Obama administration writes this regulation. It's almost going to go into effect when Trump wins. If <laughs> if, Hillary, if Hillary Clinton had won, it would have been in effect. Trump wins. He kiboshes it. It's not going into effect. When Biden wins, he puts it back into the motion, mm-hmm. and, and it's going to get approved. And so after it gets approved, the uh, state of West Virginia, big coal-producing co- co- uh, state, and some other uh, different entities sued and said, this is just no way is this authorized under the Environmental Protection Act. And ultimately what happens is the Supreme Court again says, and this time they expressly cite to the major questions doctrine, this is too big of a giant political issue that affects too many people. Hmm. We are not going to give Chevron deference to the agency to interpret their statute that allows them to regulate emissions at each source at each factory, each power plant to regulate the entire United States cumulative amount of of energy production by category, that it has to be only individual sources. If you want to say what coal fire power plants have to do and check each one to make sure they comply, that's what Congress said you can do. But don't tell us that only 25% of the energy can come from coal fired plants and just make up that rule. That's It's not in there at all. Here's what I think is pretty fascinating. That's a good point, though. Do what? That doesn't seem tortured. That seems reasonable. Yeah. Well, it, it, but if you'd followed Chevron, they could have said that was right. a reasonable interpretation of the statute and gotten away with it. But I mean, that even goes beyond the industry of coal. You know what I mean? Well, the, if it, it said 25% of coal within the coal industry needs to be clean coal, like I could see that working. But to say uh, energy. You know what I mean? Well, like even it's if just, they said twenty five percent of clean coal needs to be coal, twenty five percent of coal needs to be clean, needs to be clean yeah. coal. That would not be authorized under at least this part of the Environmental Protection okay. Act because it says you should only regulate at each source. 
Right. Okay. So okay. each factory has an amount of pollution Got they can it. put okay. out. So if it had said that they could regulate the industry, then maybe my example would work. Sure. But Congress but didn't it, say regulate the industry. It. Okay. Yeah. That seems reasonable. That yeah. doesn't seem tortured. So the Supreme Court, but they got rid of Chevron for this major question. They went around Chevron. They said Chevron doesn't apply. So the major questions doctrine is kind of made up, but it does make sense. The major questions doctrine has been talked about for a while, but essentially it's a way to start getting courts to stop giving deference to administrative agencies. So it really should have, that's what Chevron should have done. Yes. Right. Chevron never should have given that much authority to agencies to interpret their own regulations. That was really getting off the track. And the tactical mistake at the time was it was the 1980s, the 20th century. We were kind of, we as a society were kind of used to ignoring the Constitution and letting agencies do what they want to do. And then (laughs) the Reagan administration, which was the most limited government conservative, you know, presidency we'd had in a while, they asked for that power. The court said, okay. And then it gets abused by the future agencies. Have you ever seen the chart of national debt under Reagan? Yeah. That's not limited government. I fell for it too, but I thought it was the deregulation that caused that great boom. And it was great. I mean, even the music was upbeat and the colors were bright. And we were all happy and totally fine. I mean, I'd rather be happy and bankrupt the country than do it these guys did with COVID and like bankrupt the country and make us all miserable. So I'm fine with it, but I just always kind of bum when I see that. But anyway, yes. Okay. So they decided, yeah, you want to give us unlimited power. We're going to use it for good instead of evil. Right. And then of course (laughs) the next guy comes along and they use it for evil. Yes. 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 So there's, there's the problem. So the West Virginia university EPA case, it's, it's great that the outcome is major question doctrine says Chevron doesn't apply Agency, you can't do that. You can't overturn the entire uh, way that we produce energy in the United States. You can't shut down a bunch of coal-fired plants just because there's too many of them. Uh, and and so that's pretty strong language. But I want to talk for just a second about Justice Kagan's dissent because this really explains the intellectual position of the progressives who want these agencies to have this kind of power. She says the quiet part out loud. She very clearly says what's going on. So here's some just a few quotes from her decision. Um, it's not surprising that Congress has always delegated and continues to do so, including on important policy issues. In all times, but ever more in our compre- com- increasingly complex society, the legislature simply cannot do its job absent an ability to delegate power under broad general de- directives. And she cites another case from the 80s called Mistrata, which was another one that gave more power to the administrative agencies. So she's basically of the belief that the limited power of Congress to pass laws doesn't matter because we need the experts in our increasingly complex society. But, but I mean, Congress could just write their mandate more broadly or write more mandates. Or more clearly, right? And yeah. we just have a rule that if Congress wants to delegate yeah. to do something, then unlimited to, power, it has to say that. They have to say that. Which I would say they should not be permitted to do because it's a total abdication. But that's anyway, too much that, delegation. In that, I, I, that I would, would agree with you. What? It's the non-delegation doctrine that it was argued that right. Congress couldn't do that, and that was the first case I started with that says delegation's okay. Right, because you have you have covered all this. It's true. Yeah. So the, the but the the point is that the, the nowhere in the Constitution does it say that Congress can give its power to somebody else. 
Can I can I read Clint's sure. point because it's a good one? The reason most agencies should not exist is that most of the things they regulate are state issues, not federal issues. The first question should be where is constitutional authority? I think he's saying even for Congress. I like that. Thank you, Clint. Yeah. So first of all, there's no constitutional authority to delegate power, but then there's also the question with yeah. Clint's Clint's on yes. about if, if they want to regulate radio transmissions or the whole world of crazy stuff where does it say that that is actually commerce under the constitution or one of the other delegated powers in article one section eight there's there's a few things they could regulate they could clearly regulate money weights and balances that kind of stuff but regulating and, and those would be passing laws um so let me finish reading about what, what Justice Kagan says, because I think this is important. The attitude of those people on the Supreme Court and other people high up in government who think it's okay for these agencies to have all this power, listen to what she says. Members of Congress often don't know enough and know they don't know enough to regu- regulate sensibly on an issue. Of course, members can and do provide overall direction. But then they rely, as all of us rely in our daily lives, on people with greater expertise and experience. Those people are found in agencies. Congress looks to them to make specific judgments about how to achieve its more general objectives. We should trust the experts. We need a technocracy. We need a technocracy. We One need more Philip quote. Drew, administrator. Yep. And then but what that's about- that's Clint's point is excellent there. Yeah, It's absolutely. like, no, they don't. They yep. should not be doing stuff that they don't have the capacity. That's why I don't like the Department of Justice or the FBI. The reason it doesn't exist is because Congress is not meant- to have that level of control, it must have the cooperation of the executive or the states. Absolutely. Or why are they regulating in 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 just about all the other areas that they regulate? Why should they be regu- Why should the federal government be regulating radio transmissions Anything. content? Yeah, all that yeah. kind of stuff. All right. One last point. I want we're further about sure. mm-hmm. how she wants a technocracy. She says, second and relatedly. Uh, this has to do with what happens when things change over time, when the technology changes. And she's saying that's why we need to let the agencies make up new rules that aren't even authorized by Congress because things change over time. And so as long as they're following Congress's general direction, they should be able to do what they want. So she says, second, relatedly, members of Congress often can't know enough. And again, no, they can't to keep regulatory schemes working across time. So if if the, a series of of authorities issued by Congress and it, it regulate something that we don't have anymore, the you know the bug mm-hmm. industry, mm-hmm. Uh, she's saying that well as we as cars are developed, we should let the buggy regulatory agency go ahead and without authority develop the regulations for cars because that this Congress doesn't have time to keep up with new technology that she believes that they should just be able to modernize and make up new rules as they go along. So I would say, actually, this wasn't Thomas Jefferson's idea, but my grandfather used to say this, that laws should expire. That's a good one. If you and I could be put on the new constitutional convention, we could do things like laws should expire, laws should wait for a year. And my favorite that we, that we, that we have in Tennessee is a single caption bill so that it's an unconstitutional law that anyone can challenge who's affected by the law if it doesn't relate to the caption on the bill. So if you want to pass a law about pollution, you can't slide in there something about radio oh, radio waves nice. regulation. But the federal at the federal level you can. 
Well, I wouldn't want a new constitution because there's absolutely no way it's going to be better than this one. So we can maybe you and I can try to get a couple of amendments passed, but that's, do that's not the idea start well. over. Yeah, uh, amend it with the, the the I like the single caption rule as one. I when like people it. ask yeah. me what I would propose, I'd start with that one. Okay. okay. Next big case: Sackett versus Environmental Protection Agency. So another EPA case. This is the Clean Water Navigable Waterways case. The Supreme Court, way back in the Ogden case, which was in the 1820s, basically said, under the Commerce Clause, Congress has the power to regulate navigable waterways. Mm -hmm. So like the Hudson River between New York and New Jersey. And because they can regulate navigable waterways as part of commerce, eventually when when the 20th century came along and pollution got worse and worse, the Environmental Protection Agency was given the authority to regulate pollution in navigable waterways. There's nowhere in the Constitution that it gives uh, Congress the ability to regulate your backyard for pollution, a, a pond right. uh, in, in the woods out by itself. Because the only reason it has the, any power at all over pollution in waterways is because it has the constitutional authority to regulate commerce over navigable waterways. Well, what eventually ended up happening was the the Environmental Protection Act was amended to basically cover um, adjacent waterways and waterways that were part of navigable waterways. So think about it this way. If mm-hmm. you're on the river in your in your shipping container pushing tugboat, what if there's a swamp or a area with with, you know, with you know just reeds or whatever close by but it's the same surface so can congress regulate that in order to ensure the main area remains navigable and eventually the supreme court had a case that they decided four one to four about whether or not maybe the environmental protection agency could also regulate other waterways that quote had a nexus so what if it's a yes. drainage ditch on the other side of a yeah. of a dam or retaining wall, but that water is dumping right into the river? Can they also regulate that water? And once that case came out and they said it was 4-1 to 4, so it wasn't any, any firm decision, but Justice Powell, I think it was, was the single decision. He used the words, if it has a nexus. Well, the Environmental Protection Agency took that word nexus and just ran mm-hmm. it up the flagpole as far as I it remember go. that from law school, like nexus, nexus, like that was a big thing that they did that. But I would say it would be a logical thing to say they would have authority over it if it affects the navigability of the waterway. That's yes, that should be the constitutional limit, something but like it that. Yeah. Um, but instead, what happened was they started to say, well, if you are affecting a pond that drains into the soil that crosses a street that is in the same same general vicinity vicinity of a non-navigable creek or stream that eventually goes to a non-navigable lake that eventually feeds into maybe a navigable river eventually well they all feed into the ocean or navigable river eventually basically they they could the environmental protection agency interpreted it so broadly that they could eventually regulate uh, almost any piece of water in the united states under the power to regulate navigable waterways. So in this in this case, uh, the Sacketts started to build a home on some property they bought in Idaho that had no wetlands on it. It had no standing water on it. And they started putting some gravel into a low-lying area. And the EPA came along and told them they had to get the gravel out of there and not build. And it was going to be something like $1,000 a day for every day that they didn't remove the gravel from their property that they needed to put in there to start building the house. And 
basically, let me let me describe how the Supreme Court describes this the, what the EPA says the waterway is that it contains wetlands. And they are adjacent to, as in since they're in the same neighborhood as what is described as an unnamed tributary <laughs> on the other side of a 30-foot road. That tributary feeds into a non-navigable creek, which in turn feeds into Priest Lake, an intrastate body of water that the EPA has designated as traditionally navigable. To establish a significant nexus, the EPA lumped the Sackett's lot together with the Callisby Bay Fen, and Fen is a, a swamp, uh, a large nearby, nearby wetland complex that the agency regarded as similarly situated. In other words, in plain English, and I had to write this out, the Sackett's lot had no standing water on it, but rainwater would seep in their lot to a ditch. The ditch would go to a non-navigable creek, then to an interstate intrastate lake that was in the general area of a separate but wetland. I mean nearby yeah. the EPA that was similarly so situated, and therefore there was a nexus. And the Supreme Court said that's going too far. So any place where it could rain is fair game for the EPA. That's what they tried to say. I mean, literally, because <laughs> that, I mean, that's, rain is going to connect to something that connects to something that has some kind of navigable navigability eventually yeah, so what's, it's just so what's one the, system <laughs> so what's the constitutional limit on the epa to regulate everything yeah. they want to and that's what it the supreme court basically ruled and now they basically did it they got into the weeds about nexus does not mean that kind of relationship what nexus basically means is it's the same level piece of water if it's a swamp that's adjacent to a river yeah but this is there's no, no water it's between, just the rain yeah. So the Supreme Court threw this right. EPA ruling out, and the Sacketts can now build on their property, which is another Great. big win for people. That was who are, what year? That was 2022, I think. That was the big one. You were all excited about that, I remember. That was, no, that was 2023. That was this year. Wow. I yeah, do remember the, you, yeah, you, were, that, you were super excited about it, right? Yep. Um, one more case, and then we'll talk about one that's currently before the Supreme Court to wrap this up. Okay. Is this a Justice Thomas uh no this what was, was the big one that he wrote the that was the Oberfell the one that it wasn't Oberfell it was the Roe oh it was Roe right didn't he didn't he write some so yeah, you're gonna tell yes okay because that that's a big one for there was some this. there was some stuff in the Dobbs decision that he wrote his okay. concurrence about and Dobbs is the one that overthrew Roe so we'll just talk about this for two seconds right. and one of the big fights in there was that Roe the original Roe versus Wade was was found to be. Uh, part of the non-stated powers of the 14th Amendment uh, due process clause. And the due process clause has been warped backwards and forwards to somehow grant substantive rights. And Justice Thomas has been on this since he was even not before he was on the Supreme Court to say, well, wait a minute, the line before that says, the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States shall not be abridged. And that provision of the 14th Amendment basically got thrown out by the slaughterhouse cases in the 1870s because the, the Supreme Court basically said, no, that only applies to very limited federal rights like access to vote in a federal election or to visit a federal post office. Other than that, it wasn't any substantive guarantee of rights, so it's never been cited by the Supreme Court. So when Justice Thomas wrote his concurrence in uh, the uh, abortion case, they basically he basically said, it's time for us to revisit the 14th Amendment, 
the rights that we should be deciding that Americans have should be under the Privileges and Immunities Clause, not made up under this Due Process Clause. The political fallout was a lot of people said, well, that means he's going to attack the right to gay marriage because that was under the Due Process Clause. And I think the response to that is, no, he doesn't. he's not saying we should throw it out. He's just saying we should find the rights in the right place in the Constitution, which is the Privileges and Immunities Clause. If they ever restore the Tenth Amendment, that would pretty much take care of that. But okay. That would help. All yeah, right. Because then the states could make the, I mean, marriage has always been squarely in the arena of the states, the purview of the states, and that's where it should have been. So Yeah, that's that's. I okay. think that's an interesting one. All right. Okay, keep going. This one is it, more, right? One more quick one, and then one current case before the Supreme Court we'll talk about as we go out the door. Biden versus Nebraska. This was a case where uh, President Biden got the agency in charge of student loans to basically say, we're going to modify all the student loans for this giant class of people using the regulation that allows the agency to modify loan payments for certain individuals who maybe were deployed in the military or otherwise um, had to, uh, you know, otherwise had a compelling reason to have their loan payments modified. Um, and the Supreme Court, I thought, said something pretty interesting that basically one commentator, one justice said, Using the word modify to mean we can change the whole system for everybody would be this similar to saying that the French Revolution modified the relationship of the nobility <laughs> to the people. Um, so the, the, they read the word modify too broadly, and the Supreme Court, again, cites to the uh, major questions doctrine to say doing something that big is not authorized by the statute. And they threw out Joe Biden's loan forgiveness program because he clearly overread the power that was given uh, by the administrative agency uh, to the administrative agency from Congress. And so yet another example of the Chevron doctrine. So that's three cases we've mm -hmm. talked about today where mm -hmm. Chevron doesn't mean anything anymore. And That's so the great. last case I want to talk about as we're, as we're going out the door is the one to follow everybody. Let's see what the Supreme Court does oh, with cool. this. Yeah. Is Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo. And, and Mr. Raimondo is the Secretary of Commerce. And the basic facts are these. Congress uh, gave the uh, Commerce Department and, and the Fish and Game Department of the Commerce Department the authority to regulate fishing. And one of the things they don't want to do is fishermen going out and overfishing, you know, fishing and, and keeping the fish that are too small or having too many fish. How do you enforce that? Well, they're allowed to send out uh, monitors. A, a person goes out on your fishing boat with you to check to make sure that you're not fishing illegally or keeping fish you're not allowed to keep. The law passed by Congress doesn't say anything about who should pay for this government monitor that's going out with you to watch you fish. The Commerce Department read Chevron to say we get to interpret ambiguous provisions in the statute, and we interpret that to mean you, Mr. Fisherman, have to pay oh, to wow. have the government employee yeah. watch you fish. That's awful. And it's like $700 a day. Wow. And it's like basically what do fishermen make when they go out of fishing? Of course, a fish. Around $700 a day is their uh, net, is usually their net profit if they have yeah. a good day fishing. Other right. days, they're paying the government person to right. spy on them. Right. That case is now before the Supreme Court. And the argument, the, 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 what commentators are saying, and I tend to agree with, is that this is not a major question. It's not affecting everybody, but the, the principles behind it will affect everybody. Uh, and so... 
if the Supreme Court says, no, Chevron doesn't go that far, you can't make up a new rule that the that the fisherman has to pay for his own government surveillance, <laughs> that's going to go beyond the major question doctrine and really be a big clawback to the Chevron doctrine. What's, what's the name of this case again? Uh, it's Loper uh, versus Ramondo. It's Loper Bright. L-O-P-E-R. L-O-P-E-R. Loper Bright Enterprises is the name of the fishing company that was the main one who brought the case first. Okay. And Ramondo is the Secretary of Commerce. So watch mm-hmm. out for that one. They've, they've granted cert on that one. If they reach the merits and decide whether Chevron allows the agency to do that or not, and they say no, that's going to be a pretty significant uh, change in the Chevron doctrine, I would argue, because it's not a major question. It's just a policy with a major amount of influence. But that policy is outrageous, shocks the conscience. And you know what it does is, and I think they've gotten away with this before anyway on the administrative end, but what it does is it it's like a taking. You know, its purpose is to make them not do it anymore. It, yes. Essentially, if you over, you can regulate somebody out of business. And is that yeah. a violation? And that goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning with the idea that uh, in the 1920s, the Supreme Court said that your economic rights are not like your other rights, that strict scrutiny applies if we want to discriminate on account of race, that intermediate scrutiny applies on account right. if we want to discriminate on account of sex or gender. But if we want to discriminate and say, we're going to make it illegal for anybody to be a, you know, pick a profession, fishermen in California, and we're yeah. going to, and we're essentially going to do that by putting in these regulations. It's ordinary rational basis test under the, under the Supreme Court's yeah. rules. The government just has to have a rational reason to basically stop that industry. And then, so wow. in here, That's this agency is effectively doing that. Yeah. If they're going to charge fishermen $700 a day, which is about what they make to have a government spy come out and watch them fish. And they're doing it without Congress giving them any permission to do that. They've made up that rule by saying, well, the statute is silent on whether we can charge. Therefore, we can interpret it that we can charge. That's how the Chevron doctrine has been abused. Right. Well, some quack says the fish case seems close to what the USA, USDA does with meat processors. And I would argue that the difference would be, even if it is $700 a day, if you have a meat processor that's probably worth tens of thousands of dollars a day, it isn't the same as absorb, you know, it's, it's impossible. It's like spending hundred percent of your money on defense. Like you can't, it's, there's nothing left to defend. I think, yeah, the difference is if they make you pay so much that you can't stay in business. Right. But even then, if the statute that governs the USDA provisions that says meat processors have to have government inspectors watching to make sure the meat's not being, tainted or handled improperly even if it's a tiny fee if the statute doesn't say they can charge for that where does this agency get off saying we have the power to make you pay for this if congress only says right and and that's the basic rule that i think that we're going to get decided for the supreme court if congress doesn't say in the law that the agency has the power to make the producers pay they can't use Chevron to say, mm-hmm. this is ambiguous. Why do you mean right. it's ambiguous? No one in Congress thought you would ever make somebody pay for their own their own yes, supervision. Yes, that's awful. When, when I think about it, what I in, in like in um, Hunt for Red October, if you mm-hmm. follow, if any of those movies that you yeah. see the Russian military, there's a political officer whose job it is to make sure that everybody follows follows the rules. That's kind of like what we're what we're talking about here is sending in government political officers to make sure you follow the rules. 
Jack is saying this is why it's cheap to cheaper to ship in Chinese shrimp. I have this thing where like one time I bought a, a bag of frozen shrimp and it was like $5 and it was from China. And I was like, you literally took a refrigerated ship and transported this 6,000 miles or however far it was. And it's $5 when like Louisiana is lousy with shrimp or whatever, Florida. I just couldn't get my mind around it. And if he's saying they don't have regulations, then, uh, you know, you might want to say, well, it's not as good, but I'm not sure that the regulations are there for anything but to interfere with one industry or company over another. I don't think that they're genuinely there to make it better quality. It certainly does jack up the price, though, I will tell you. That's a good point, Jack. Thank you. I love to go full circle. So my my, my last comment about yeah. that is that's part of the problem with these administrative agencies. Once they've regulated an, a, a, an area of commerce until it's reasonably safe, yeah. what do the people in that job do anymore? Well, they've got to make up new crap to regulate. They've got to come up with new rules. Yes. Even though we don't really need the rules, we're, we're okay with this industry doing what it's doing. They have to justify their existence to keep their job. So that's another problem with large administrative agencies is they run out of reasonable stuff to do and they start doing way more stuff. I agree. Again, with Jack, regulations are there to create government monopolies. I, I've always felt that these regulatory barriers to entry have really kept comp competition low in some industries. I mean, it, it, we, we'd have to circle back to the, quote, so-called robber baron era to see the real origin of the, the regulatory state. I mean... Anyway, because I because we certainly haven't solved the problem of big corporations, if that was the purpose of it from the beginning. But there's so much more to talk about on so many different wavelengths. What do you think? Where are we going to go next, Eric? Or is this it? Am I never going to see you again? Oh, no. I, we can certainly talk about some more. There's <laughs> the the other cases that I think are good news going on. We can we can circle back around to talk oh, about okay. because because these the ones I wanted to concentrate today were about administrative power. Yes. Um, right. But we've got the whole like the students for fair admission, the affirmative action history. Yeah, let's and, let's and, go and, current. Yeah. So that would be a good one to talk about. Uh, we've got the religious protections and accommodations case that that's worth discussing. Oh, there's another one or that was the one that was already taken? No, there's one that got a ruling on uh, whether or not the woman had to design websites that she didn't agree with. Oh, okay, there's right, right. There's yeah. currently coming up through the courts, the same guy that was told that he had Didn't to make, make a cake yeah. for a gay wedding when he didn't oh, yeah. want to is being, it, he's getting sued again in Colorado. And I think that oh, case is getting close to oh, coming up. But so just a couple of these other cases, I think are really, uh, you know, the, the uh, that one was called 303 website design. So that's a free speech case. We have students versus, versus for fair admission, which is the one about the affirmative action at Harvard. Um, it might be interesting to talk about Moore versus Harper, which was the independent state legislature. Where under the Constitution, the question is, uh, who gets to decide which electoral votes get presented? I thought that one was kind of interesting. Uh, the Indian child custody case and the power over uh, the the Indians to regulate commerce with the Indian tribes has been expanded to include who gets priority over the custody of an orphan or uh Indian kid that's been up, put up for foster care. So there's those those cases are also there's there's some interesting constitutional trends. Great. Well, that's fantastic. Although we can't take four months off if we're going to go current, so we'll have to get right back to it. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, looking so, forward to it. 
give one more sentence on where people can find you and why, just in case people tuned in late, didn't hear the whole thing. And then uh, we'll wrap it up till next time. Yeah. So if you have any problems with the disability insurance policy, if any companies denied your long-term disability or disability insurance or health insurance, life insurance, or long-term care, find us on the World Wide Web at BuchananDisability.com. If you don't mind, Monica, I'm also going to give a quick plug. We have a separate podcast that I do on a regular weekly basis of By and For the People on Mondays. We talk about current issues in the context of con- of the Constitution and American history. And on Tuesdays, we do constitutional deep dives. Clint Powell and I are going line by line through the Constitution. That can also be found under Of By and For the People or on my website uh, for my law firm at BuchananDisability.com. People love that. My listeners love that. Where are you? Where are you in your treatment? You must have 50 episodes up already. We're at about ex- episode 65. We did the wow. first 10 amendments, and then we went back, and we've been working our way, way through Article 1, and we're up to Article 1, Section 8, Clause 5. We're going to be talking Whoa, about weight, and weights and measures 65. tomorrow. <laughs> you're going to have, oh my gosh, weights and measures. That kind of sounds like Leviticus. It's Are you the, really have boring, to do weights and it's measures? It's the most boring topic we've, we've come across, but I am going to talk about uh, what's the official uh, – measurement system in the united states is it metric or not or foot or feet and inches well i think we have like a kilogram somewhere that's getting lighter do you (laughs) know that like the official kilogram is lighter than it was before so i don't know the answer to your question well the 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 short story I'll, i'll tell more about this tomorrow but thomas jefferson was so interested in us adopting the metric system that that you know that came out during the french revolution so he was president when they were first using it and he sent an ambassador over to uh, France to get an example of a meter and a kilogram to bring home to be measured and to start using them. And that guy's ship got blown off course by a storm, ended up being captured by pirates. He ended up dying as a, in captivity oh with some pirates. So that's one reason we didn't adopt the metric system. Uh, back then. You know, that's very interesting because I bet Jefferson wanted to do that to separate from England yeah, and that we probably wouldn't be as close with England. We'd probably probably be closer with Europe, if we had them. And now, obviously, English is English, so you can't help that. But uh, that's, the, I wouldn't be surprised if that was a, there was a political motive. And if you listen in tomorrow, I'll explain why actually, officially, we are on the metric system in the United States. Oh, my gosh. See, that was, a, that was a little bit of a spoiler there, but I want to hear more. So where are we going to tune into that? This is, this is of, by, and for the people, our constitutional deep dives. Oh, that's super excellent. Thank you so much. People love uh, by and for the people that treatment of the Constitution is like a super fan favorite. So if you want to tune into that, it's on their Facebook pages and also obviously everywhere that you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much, Eric Buchanan. And thank you all for listening. This has been Deep Dives with Monica Perez. Monica Perez.